Greetings to all of you. I'm thankful to have you out here this morning. I know it being Saturday, you had a long list of, you know, honeydew jobs to do and other things going on at your house and around. But I just especially appreciate you coming out here on Saturday morning to be with us. Uh, I apologize that Brother Ray Hoggart could not be here. You got second best. But um, Brother Ray promised and said that if you will allow him, uh, he'll be glad to come back sometime. Uh, and I hope he does uh, come in with you. I, I enjoy listening to Brother Ray and hearing him preach. Uh, he and I have a lot of good times together. Of course, you know we're both old retired truck drivers, and that makes us the same kind of weird fellows. Uh, so we have a lot of things in common. But the main thing is we love the Lord, and we love the truths that set forth in God's Word. Glad to have Brother Joseph and his mother and father here with us today, and all of you. I'm glad to see you. I apologize that I can't call you each one by name. Uh, I'm working on it. Uh, maybe, you know, uh, when I get to be 100 years old, I might learn. But I, I'm just not there yet. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Psalms. Psalms, the 46th chapter. Every Psalm has a great message in it. Someone has said if you preach through the book of Psalms, you'd cover everything in the in the whole Bible. Uh, you don't even have to go through the whole book. You can almost take one Psalm and just cover everything. Uh, I'm not going to use Psalm 46 as a text as such. I've preached a series of sermons from this Psalm. This Psalm has a very special meaning to me as I was contemplating for my first time to go to India, I was very apprehensive. I really didn't want to go. And this is back in the year 2000. And I asked the Lord for very emphatic direction and assurance that he would have me to go. Uh, and there were several things that happened. I won't go into all those details to uh, give to me those assurances. And one of them was... Verse 10 of this chapter. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And from that text, the Lord gave me assurance uh, to trust him and that he would be exalted uh, in the nation of India. Well, by God's grace and mercy, Brother Zach, Brother Jeff and I uh, went to India and by God's grace and by the marvelous working of God and the Holy Spirit, uh, you know the story that now we have 30-some primitive Baptist churches in India. And the Lord has fulfilled his promise. Not what I did or any of us men did. It's what the Lord has done. And I covet your prayers for all those people there. Uh, this year will mark the 20th anniversary, of course, when we went to India. And there were plans for us to have uh, an anniversary meeting, maybe in July. But uh, Brother Gunnar has said that he felt that necessary because of the virus. And there have been 
ravaged by the virus there in India. Uh, but he said the, the government has shut down all our churches and meeting places, of course. And hopefully, he said, by the end of July, we'll be getting back to meeting again. And he said, maybe this fall or this winter, we might be able to have uh, the meeting. Well, whatever God's will is about that, we will trust him. But I do urge you to pray for God's people throughout the world, uh, not only for their deliverance from and safety from this uh, virus, uh, coronavirus, but also uh, for their persecution, physical persecution, that God's people in India, throughout the world, are undergoing. And I will tell you, friends, it is here also in America. Uh, we need to be praying for God's people. Now, we'll get into more about that, Lord's willing, in a minute, but Psalm 46. God is our refuge. I could stop right there and and just go on and preach for a long time and yet not exhaust that very subject. He is the refuge not only for our physical safety, but primarily and most importantly for our spiritual safety. He is the Savior of His people. And it is that He has redeemed us and uh, we are sheltered, refuge from the condemnation and the judgment of sin by the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And there is no other refuge except Jesus Christ. He is our refuge and strength. Uh, that is very important. Uh, Paul, writing in the fifth chapter of Romans, said, when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. We have no strength in ourselves to do anything godly. Everything that we will ever do, God-wise, will be because of God working in us. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, that does not mean to be that we are to be totally passive in everything godly. There are spiritual means and exercises that God gives to us that we are to do. You know, when you get sick physically, you go to a doctor and the doctor will say, let me ask you, what are you doing? To take care of your health. Well, I'm sitting around in a rocking chair all day long and uh, I'm just eating uh, french fries and hamburgers. Well, he said, that's not a very good appetite. Uh, you need to be eating something more wholesome. Those might taste good. You know, I like cake and pie. But you and I both know they're not the most wholesome things that you can eat. And so the doctor will put you on a diet and he will give you some exercise. The problem with Christianity in America today is we are lax, we are fat and lazy spiritually. The prophet said, woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. And we are spiritually at Zion, in ease in Zion. We need spiritual exercise. By that, I mean that we need to give ourselves more to prayer and to fasting and the study of God's word that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. He is our strength, a very present help in trouble. Very present help in trouble. We sang that song a moment ago, Never Alone. It's a great comfort to know wherever you are, at any time, at all times, the Lord is always present. I like this definition that I learned and heard many years ago when I was in seminary about the omnipresence of the Lord. And it is a very simple definition, and it will just stick with you, and it will give you great comfort. 
And it is this, that the Lord is in all places at all times as if though he was only in one place at one time. Now you just let that sink in for a moment. That is a precious comfort and it is a good definition of the omnipresence of the Lord. And you, wherever you are, in prison, I, when we're flying up there in those high skies, you know, I take great comfort in knowing that the Lord is with me. Of course, the man said, yes, but the Lord said, lo, I'm with you. Well, he is with us when we're low in the valley too, but he's also with us when we're in the high sky, wherever we are be. That song is taken from Hebrews, the 13th chapter, where the Lord said, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. And that double negative means it, it is emphasized. No, impossible for the Lord to leave us. He is our very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters are of roar and be troubled, though mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. We need to be mindful that though all around you may be seeming to fall apart, though everything is melting, though their foundations have been shaken, yet, my friend, God remains the same. He is the immutable God. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. What a great comfort, what a great promise made in there. Now, verse 4. There is a river. And I've just, through my lifetime, I've just developed a special appreciation for rivers. Uh, I was born in, born in West Virginia on Pigeon Creek. Now that's an insignificant thing to you, but to me it's very important because I used to play in Pigeon Creek. And Pigeon Creek flows down to Tug River. Tug River is very insignificant to you probably, except if you remember the story about the Hatfields and McCoys. Well, the Hatfields lived on one side of the river, Tug River, and the McCoys on the other side of Tug River. And the Tug River separates Kentucky and West Virginia. And Tug River flows into the Big Sandy, and the Big Sandy then flows into the Ohio River. Now, my wife lives up here. Her home area is from up around Charleston, and Charleston is uh, on the Kanoa River. And Conora River is composed of two rivers, the Gawler River and New River. And the Conora River flows into the Ohio River in down at Mount Point Pleasant, uh, West Virginia. And the Ohio River flows by Cincinnati, where I used to go oftentimes to the zoo. And it's amazing they let me out. But I would go visit the zoo uh, because I had two ants living there. And the Ohio River then flows into the Mississippi River. Now, what I'm wanted to share with you is just something about rivers. And there was a uh, video or story on uh, National Geographic about the Mississippi River. Now, you Western folks here, the Mississippi River is not so important to you, but us Eastern folks, uh, the Mississippi River is very important. With all the waters uh, from the Eastern United States, except when you get up on the Eastern side of the Alleghenies, uh, flow into the Mississippi River, and many of the streams from the western United States, from the Rockies, flow into the Mississippi River. And there are some rivers, of course, here in Texas that don't flow into the Mississippi River. But uh, the Mississippi River is an amazing river. And I was watching that geographic story and of great interest about the Mississippi River. 
Mississippi River is a very critical part of the history and the economy of the United States. Uh, it is a river that has its headwaters in a lake up in Minnesota. And you can see that story on the internet. And the stream there, or the lake that it, where it flows out, uh, is it, just a little small ford. And you can walk across it. But the Mississippi River flows for almost 2,400 miles down to the Gulf. And as it flows southward, there are many other rivers and streams that feed into it and make it to be the great river that it is. Now, why am I talking about that? Because of what I want to show with you, share with you from this verse, verse 4. There is a river, the streams thereof, the streams. In every river, there are many contributors. There are many streams, little, little brooks that become creeks. Creeks become rivers, and they all flow into a bigger stream. The Mississippi River, according to what I read, is the second largest river, longest river in the world. But it is not just it's what it is by itself. It is a composition of many streams flowing into it. <clears throat> These streams flow into the streams thereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the temple of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. Now, I want you to note that the city of God is made glad by all of these streams that flow into it. Now, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Lord's willing, and the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her, and that right early. Now, to me, the city of God has great emphasis about the Lord's church. That is the Lord's assembly, the city of God, Mount Zion, uh, and it is that city that I am most concerned about the church of Jesus Christ. And you'll note that there are many streams that make glad the city of God. Now, there are many subjects that could be taken up today to talk to you and encourage you about uh, the Lord and about Jesus Christ as God's people. And the thing that we should be mindful of is, as we are looking at this, is that this is the city of God the house of God, and it's a holy of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. Every time the Lord's church meets together, where even two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of her. Now, the world is greatly impressed with these assemblies where they have large thousands of people gathered together, and they think that evidently that, that preacher must indeed be uh, a spiritual man called of God because he's got three or four or five or six thousand out there that he's preaching to. Well, if he would let a God-called preacher, if it happened to be that an old primitive Baptist preacher would get to preach to those people one time, the crowd would go home right real quick because they're not there for the most part to hear the message of truth. They're there to have their ears tickled and the truth would drive them home and they wouldn't be coming back. Now then, the heathen rage, that's going on. That has always been going on against the people of God. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. Now, all that's going on in the world today, I want to tell you, it is going on 
by the permissive will of God and by the will of God. I believe that God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We may not understand, we may not like what's going on at certain times, but I will tell you, God Almighty is at work in your life and in our country and in our world to his glory and for the good of his people. Now, I will tell you, that is something that you cannot believe unless God by his Holy Spirit imparts a faith to you that you know who it is that's working. Who it is that's working. Not you, not the government, but God Almighty is in control. And he is the one that we need to be looking to. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. God got excited. What in the world am I going to do? No, God is not wringing his hands. The Psalms chapter 2, I preached from this psalm quite often because I just love to tell people what God is doing while all this ungodliness, while the world is raging. In Psalms chapter 2, it says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. God is laughing at the foolishness of men. Now, not that he approves of it, but he knows what their intent and design is. What is it? It is to destroy God's people and to eradicate the name of Jesus Christ from off the face of the earth. We have a messianic promise given in Psalms or in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve had sinned and the Lord said to Eve and to the serpent that the, that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent and that the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of woman. That conflict has been going on ever since God put man in the garden. And that conflict is still going on today. But I want to tell you what I hope to talk to you about is the outcome of it. And we'll look more at that later on. But I want you to know God is not fretting. God is in control. And I don't mean that in the sense that he is the author of sin in any sense. I mean to say that God will allow evil people to do only what will accomplish his will. And the death of Jesus Christ is a great illustration of that. Wicked men acted out their passions and their conspiracies, but their conspiracies and their wicked acts were allowed by God Almighty to fulfill the will of God and bringing about the death of his son to redeem his people from their sins. And the proof that God was in control is because time and time again, as you will read about the death of Jesus Christ, you will hear it, you'll read, this was done that the prophecies of the scriptures might be fulfilled. The very piercing of the side of the saviors by the Roman soldier was by the will of God. He came to break the bones, but God had said not a bone of his body should be broken. And while he came there with the evil intent to break the bones of our Savior, God Almighty restrained what he had planned to do, and God allowed him and caused him to pierce the side of our Savior in fulfillment of God's predetermined will. Now think about that. What if he had not pierced his side? The, proof, the Bible and the scriptures would have been broken. And you have no sure confidence that this is the Messiah, the Savior. God was in control in the death of Christ. 
And he's always, my friends, in control in the minute circumstances of my life and your life. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her in that right early. Our Lord said to his church when he established it in Matthew, the 16th chapter, he said, upon, the, upon this rock, I will establish my church, my assembly, and the gates of hell. He was talking about the forces, the powers, the ungodly, wicked world, that our Lord's church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I believe the promise of Jesus Christ. I believe the Lord's church is going to be here upon the earth someplace or another until when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Paul said in Ephesians, the third chapter, unto him be glory in the church throughout all ages. And the Lord has an institution that he established by Jesus Christ. It's called the church of Jesus Christ. And it is a called out assembly of born again baptized believers. And somewhere in the world, my friend, it's going to be in existence. It did not come out of Rome. It was founded by Jesus Christ. And it's in existence today. I believe I'm talking to it today. And if you don't understand, realize the importance of the Lord's church, you need to be reading your scriptures and reading the Bible because Jesus Christ loved his church and gave himself for it. It's precious unto him. Now then, the heathen raised, the kingdoms are moved. What does God do? He uttered his voice and the earth melted. God Almighty, who brought this world into existence simply by the word of his power, he can destroy this whole world simply by the word of his power. I hear people talk about, oh, we're going to have an outbreak of atomic warfare and the world is going to be destroyed by atomic power. No, when the world is destroyed, it'll be by the power of God Almighty, not by the power of what men will do. The Lord of hosts is with us. That means that the Lord and all of the hosts of heaven, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, the same God that was with Jacob, is our refuge. God has not changed. His program has not changed. He is still in control and he is with us. Well, you say, well, what about Israel over there in the Palestine? I'm not talking about that Israel. I'm talking about the spiritual Israel, the seed of God. That's, that is the spiritual Israel I'm talking about. That's the people that we need to be concerned about. I have no, I'm not have, don't have any animosity against the people in, in Israel. I take great respect for them. I appreciate what we do to defend them. They're friends to our United States. Out of the few countries in the world, they are good friends to us. But I'll tell you one thing. I don't believe that that is the elect nation of God. I believe that there is a spiritual elect nation of God, and I believe I'm addressing it today. I'd like to have an amen, Brother Joseph. Okay, thank you. I told you I wanted your scotch for me. <clears throat> Come. Behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bowl. He cutteth the spear asunder. He burneth the chariots in the fire. Friend, if you just read through the Old Testament, you'll find that God time and time again destroyed the very enemies of Israel. And he did it with a miraculous power. Sometimes he would use the army and sometimes he didn't use the army. In the days of Hezekiah, Zanacharib came up against uh, Jerusalem, and he told he conquered many other countries. And he told Zanacharib, told uh, Hezekiah, said, "I'm going to tell you something. Your God is not going to be able to save you." And God told Hezekiah, "I said, don't worry about it. He's not going to set foot in that. He don't want him to be able to shoot an arrow into the city." And uh, so they all went to sleep that night. 
And the angel of the Lord went through the host of Zennacherib, his great army. And if I'm not mistaken, it was 480,000 people, soldiers that were killed by one angel passing through the midst of them. And you know what happened? Zennacherib went running home. Now, he got killed when he got home, but he went running home. God just simply sent one angel and killed the whole army. Be still, therefore, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. You know what be, you know what be still means? Patiently waiting with confidence. I am the most impatient person in the world. My wife will tell you that. And I just have to constantly remind myself, wait, be patient. It'll work out. And here's a verse for all of us. We want God to do something right now. You know, those the apostles said, let us call down fire from heaven that might be destroyed. God said, leave them alone. There's a time when God's judgment will come. It may not be tomorrow. But I'll tell you one thing. God's judgment is coming against the ungodly. Rest assured. We want to see it done tomorrow or today. But my friends, trust the Lord. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted even among the heathen. Now the heathen is us, what we were before we were brought to the knowledge of Christ. Before God, by his sovereign grace, was pleased to regenerate us and bring us the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we lived and acted like heathens. We were ungodly. Now when you see these people rioting out here in these streets and all that's going on, say what you need, we need to say, were it not for God's grace, that would be me. God, by his sovereign grace, has chosen us unto salvation before the foundation of the world. And God, by his sovereign grace, has regenerated us. And so we don't act like the world. And the only difference between the world and us is God, by his sovereign grace. Don't be boastful on who you are. And say, were it not for grace, that would be me. Our hearts were deceitful and desperately wicked. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children's disobedience. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Well, that's introduction. Now I need to do something before I forget it. This is, this is Saturday. And somebody will be calling me. And if President Trump calls me, I don't want him to interrupt services. And so you excuse me, I need to turn my phone off. Now what that means too is my timer's gone. Streams. I, I could like to pick up any one of these streams and go with them. I could go up the stream of God's free and sovereign grace. And I believe the Holy Spirit would use it to bless our hearts and be reminded that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Jesus Christ came to earth to die for his people to save them from our sins. And we are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And heaven is our home by God's grace and God's mercy. Oh, what a precious stream that is to go up. We could talk about the stream of God's justification whereby that God satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ, 
And there is therefore now no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus. And we stood before God before the foundation of the world was justified by the eternal counsel of God. Oh, I'd like to take you up that stream and talk some about that. Or we could talk about the stream of redemption. Oh, how precious is that stream of redemption to know that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we've been redeemed from bondage and sin has no longer any power over us. And we belong unto Christ because he has paid a precious price for our salvation. There are many other, the subject of the Lord's church. I'd just love to go up that stream and talk to you some about that. And maybe in time, another time, we'll be blessed to do that. I love the truth of the Lord's church, the ordinances of the Lord's church, the doctrine of baptism. Oh, what a precious truth it is. And the Lord has given us a means whereby the, we are to declare our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that baptism, my friends, is given for the Lord's church to minister to those who have been redeemed and who make a confession of Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it is indeed, as it were, a wall around the church of Jesus Christ. There was a time when we used to hold to this Baptist distinctive, whereby that we said we believe in a regenerated church membership. But now it seems like we're throwing the doors wide open and it's come as you are. Be whatever you want to be and believe whatever you want to be. We're glad to have you. Oh, may God help us. There's a wall that the Lord erected about the church. and That's the wall of baptism. And that's a biblical wall, my friend. There's a principle set forth in the word of God of what biblical baptism is all about. It's more so than just what some people want to think it is. It's not just pouring water over. It's not even getting immersed in water, my friend. It is the very purpose and the very people who are being baptized and by what authority they are baptized. But I won't go up that stream anymore. Oh, the stream of the Lord's Supper. How precious that is. I just, you know, I just... I'd love to talk to you. I love to talk about that stream. I've, I've written an article on defense of closed communion. I believe that there is an assembly whereby the Lord would have his people come together in a discipline assembly of people who've been born again, who've been scripturally baptized, and they come together in accord and in harmony, and they sit together and they observe the Lord's death and his and his resurrection and his broken body and his shed blood and he said this do in remembrance of me and I will tell you friends if you don't do it like the Lord said do it you don't remember him but I'll not go up that stream anymore there are other streams that I would just like to talk to you about they're precious streams I grew up in the mountains. I love stream water. We have a lot of artesian wells round up in the mountains. We have a lot of mountain streams. And I'll tell you, you go up in those mountains and you go up there and get some of that cold water flowing down off of those mountains. And that water is just so refreshing, so good. There is a stream that flows from the throne of God. And it has all these streams in it. God's grace and God's mercy, whereby God's people are refreshed. Read your Bible, because it's a precious book that will comfort and encourage you. But if the Lord will allow me, I'd like to talk to you more about the book from the book of Revelation. If you turn now in your Bible to the book of Revelation, 
I've preached through the book of Revelation. I've studied much about Revelation. But I will tell you, I don't know all about Revelation. I don't know everything, every dot and every tittle. I'm not like some of these smart guys who think that they know exactly what's going to happen. I'll tell you, you, any man who will start telling you that he knows exactly how it's going to happen, he is trying to pull the wool over your eyes. When we are talking about prophecy, we must tread very carefully and very lightly. Because I'll tell you, we're looking at one side of it. God has another side of it. And that's the stage wherein the things will unfold according to God's plan and purpose. But I read in the first chapter that John was on the Isle of Patmos. Who's John? This is John the Apostle. He is the last soul survivor of the original apostles. And he's on the Isle of Patmos. What's Patmos? Patmos is a relatively small island in the Mediterranean Sea wherein that the Roman Empire would send its um, rebels, uh, those that they want to imprison and uh, make them experience, you know, uh, the harsh life of living on a isolated island. Here he is there. The story unfolds for you in the first chapter, and he will set the stage for you. And he said, John, verse 4, John to the seven churches. I believe that these are seven real literal churches, and I will call them Baptist churches, because all the churches in New Testament were Baptistic churches. And these are New Testament Baptist churches. Now, all seven of these were seven literal churches, and they kind of, if you would take a map and go to each church and go around, you would see that it would kind of formulate a circle. I have suspicion. I have not the authority by the Bible, but there is some, some tradition that John probably was instrumental in establishing all of these churches. If not establishing them, he at least visited them. He, in the latter days of his life, He was one of the pastors at Ephesus. And John, now almost a 100 years old, is lonely on the Isle of Patmos. And he says to us, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be to you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. You know, that's the great message about Jesus Christ, which is and which was and which is to come. He's coming. I believe the Lord's coming. Just as surely and certain as he came, so he is coming. And that's what we need to be reminded of. The Lord is coming. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord came today? And this book begins with that declaration, the Lord is coming. And it ends with a prayer, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And this book comes to you from verse 5, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Now, this isn't some prophetic teacher This isn't, you know, some of those men who claim that they know all about prophecy. Uh, This isn't Larkin. Some of you may not know who I'm talking about when I say Larkin. Larkin was a man who formulated a book called The Seven Dispensations. This isn't Larkin. Uh, This is not some systematic theology that someone... What we're reading here in Revelation is a message of Jesus Christ to his churches. And I'll tell you, his churches of all ages. Of all ages. 
There are two interpretations about the book of Revelation that is terribly wrong. One of them is the doctrine, the interpretation of called preterism. Preterism will read the book of Revelation and believe that everything in the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. It's a book of history. And they say that in 70 AD, everything in the book of Revelation was accomplished, including the resurrection. That's the extreme re- of, of preterism. The other error is the book is the idea of what is called dispensationalism. Dispensationalists separate this book out. And the very first four chapters, first three chapters, they say, are for time that John was living in. And the last, beginning with the fourth chapter on through, it does not begin according to dispensations because they have a gap between the third and the fourth chapter. So the fourth chapter doesn't start until after the rapture. Now, I believe in a scriptural rapture. I believe when the Lord shall come, according to what Paul writes in Thessalonians, the dead in Christ will rise first, and whoever is saints of God that are yet alive, they will be changed in a moment, according to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, they will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we will all together be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be. That's the biblical definition, that's the biblical catching up. I do not believe, I'm sorry, I do not believe in pre-trib rapture. Now, I used to. I came out of seminary believing that, and that's what I was taught in seminary because I trusted what somebody else said, and I could take you through the Bible, and I could teach all about seven dispensations to you. But what I found out is it's a house of cards. It falls apart. When you look at the ninth chapter of Daniel, it won't stand. I know all these preachers on radio and television, they are dispensations and they're talking to you about the pre-trib rapture. Now, why am I taking exception to it? Because we need to know the truth. We're being deceived. Christian people are deceived throughout the world by saying, don't worry about what's happening, what's going on around about you. Don't be concerned about you. But before things get really bad, the Lord's going to come and we're going to be caught out of here. 1971, Corey Timboom put out a book, called The Hiding Place. If you're familiar with that book, it tells about her experience of being in a German concentration camp. She is the sole survivor out of her family from the Netherlands during World War II. And she says in the introduction to her book, I believe it is, at least she said this at some time because I've got it down. She said, the reason I believe why God allowed me to live and survive the concentration camp is so I could tell the world and warn the world What's coming? And what's coming, friends, is what happened in Europe. What's coming to America is what happened in Europe. Socialism is taking over America. Now you say, oh, Brother Hatfield, no, sir, I'm not, we're not going to let that happen. Friend, they are taking away from you already. That's already what's going on. They violated the Constitution when they said the churches could not meet. That's a violation of the Constitution of the United States. And it was upheld, upheld by the Supreme Court, and the deciding vote was cast by the uh, 
the head of the Supreme Court, I can't think of his title, John Roberts, and he cast the deciding vote, and he was elected and appointed to be on the Supreme Court because he was a so-called conservative. Now, I don't care what your politics are. I'm important, concerned about the cause of Christ. And I'm not wanting here to advocate any particular politics. But I want to tell you, I voted for Trump. I'll vote for him again. But Trump is not the savior of America. He is bound by certain powers, political powers. And we've already seen, know, that the House of Representatives is controlled by a socialistic concept. And if we have the Senate, if the Senate goes with the Democratic Party, you can kiss it all goodbye. Except God, be merciful to us. I said, except God. And I pray for America for the God's elect's sake, for God's people's sake, for his church. If God, if God withholds judgment from America, friends, it'll only be for his elect's sake. We deserve God's judgment. All the abortions and homosexuality that's going on in our country, we deserve the judgment of God. But I'm not wanting to get into that. What I want to give you is an encouraging message and tell you God's on his throne. God is working and God rules and reigns in the affairs of men to accomplish his will. And the Lord Almighty knows who his people are, where they are, and he is our defense and our refuge in the time of trouble. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness to the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. He is the kings over all the kings of the earth. Paul, writing back over in 2 Timothy, will tell you something about Jesus Christ. In the sixth chapter, I believe it is, of 2 Timothy, he will tell you, 1 Timothy it is, and he will tell you about Jesus Christ, about the appearing of the Lord when he comes in his times, and verse 15 of the 6th chapter of 1 Timothy, he will show he is the, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who reigns over the affairs of this world, my friend. That's who reigns as king over all the principalities. He is the ruling king and lord of the universe. Unto him that loved us. Oh, Paul wants to give you a little... John wants to give you a little love note here from the Lord. Unto him that loved us. How much did he love you? He washed us from our sins in his own blood. Isn't that a precious promise? Isn't that a precious truth to know that you've been loved by Jesus Christ? Loved before the foundation of the world. And so loved by the Father that he sent his Son to redeem you from your sins. And he washed us from all of our sins in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we stand before God, justified by the precious blood of Christ. And made us to be, and I like this interpretation here, a kingdom of priests. I'll talk about that maybe some other time. 
unto God and his Father, and to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierce him all the kindreds of the earth, and they shall well because of him. Even so, amen. I believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. I believe in a visible, literal coming of Jesus Christ. I believe exactly what Paul John here writes by the Holy Spirit. Every eye shall see him, and they shall well, even those who put him to death. How is that going to happen? There will be a resurrection of the wicked, of the ungodly. They will be resurrected also. Paul writes in Thessalonians, said, The Lord will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and who obey not the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. When the Lord comes, when the Lord comes, I believe there's going to be the resurrection of the saints of God and the resurrection also of the wicked. And they're going to be stamped, brought before the judgment seat of the Lord. And they're going to be declared that they are, that hell is going to be their dominion for all eternity. And the saints of God will be around the throne of God and we'll be shouting hallelujah to the Lamb who brings judgment against the wicked. I haven't time to go into all that and prove that to you, but I'll just tell you what my understanding of it is. And if you don't agree with me, that's all right. You pray for me. But I'll tell you what, I've been reading this book a long time. And I don't know it all, but I have a little bit better, clearer understanding about some things than what I had many years ago. And I know enough to tell you that a lot of false prophecies and a lot of false teaching that's going on in the world today about the coming of the Lord. Don't be deceived by that false doctrine of a pre-trib rapture that you don't have to worry about what's happening. We need to be praying and waiting and preparing yourself and say, asking God to give you grace that you might be able to withstand the persecution and the judgment that's coming against this world. Listen, if you know the history of the Lord's churches, millions of God's people suffered cruelly at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church and at the hands of the Protestant Church and even here in the colonies of the United States Baptist people suffered cruelly. Persecution. And if persecution is not for us to this day and age, what about those in past ages? Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. The problem is we're not living godly enough that we are being persecuted by the world. And when the world finds out what you believe and sees what you believe, you'll find out what persecution is all about. i got to go on. I, John, I'm down verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. Oh, John, you're in tribulation. I thought it wasn't going to happen till later on, John. It's ongoing, always. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the devil's been trying to destroy God's people. And the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the, was in the isle that's called Patmos. Why are you there, John? Why are you there? I'm looking for paradise. You want to get a place to retire at? You want to get a place whereby you can float your yachts? No, I'm here for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was on the in the spirit on the Lord's day. I believe this was the Lord's day. 
I believe it was a Sunday. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I like to call Sunday the Lord's day. It is the Lord's day. And I tell you, it's very important, I believe, for us to take advantage of it, to be in the spirit on the Lord's day. God's people worship him how? In spirit and in truth. And if we would take that as a principle, we would learn how precious it is to be in the spirit on the Lord's day to worship him. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he said, and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet. Now let me just think with you for a minute, and you think with me for a minute. Here's this apostle. He's the last one surviving apostle, and he's been faithful for the Lord. He's now about a 100 years old, and he's been faithful for the Lord all these years, and he's been beaten, he's been threatened, his life been threatened. I mean, he's had a hard time of it, and now he's on the aisle, and there's no churches there, and nobody there but him as a Christian. There might have been some other people, but he is a saint of God there, and he's all alone. Lord, why did you forsake me? Lord, why don't you let me happen to me? Oh, Lord, don't you know what's going on? <laughs> he's there by the will of God. Because God has a message he wants him to write. And he's going to give it to him. Paul was put in prison by the will of God. All the Roman soldiers put him in prison. He's there by the will of God for the... Paul said, I want you to know the things that have happened to me have fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel. You read it in Philippians. And he's there in Roman, in the prison, for those peers. What for? He writes. And when you're reading those epistles... Come the Apostle Paul, most of them were written, they're called prison epistles. And God put him there and shut him up so he could write to the saints of God, not only in that day and age, but for you and I, for our comfort and our instruction. And you read the book of Philippians written from the prison house, and Paul calls it the great joy. Be, be joyful in the Lord in the midst of tribulations. John's on the Isle of Patmos. All alone. The Lord is going to give him a message to encourage him and to comfort him and to strengthen him. And the Lord is going to tell him what the outcome of this whole course of history is going to be. Right on. And he's going to give him some panoramic views of some things that's happened in the past, but he's going to take him right on and show him the end time. Now I've got ten minutes left. Let me just tell you about these seven churches. All of them had problems except the church of Philadelphia. Every church somewhere or another, every New Testament church, sometime or another, has some kind of problems. You know why? Because it's composed of human beings who are also problems. We create problems. We make problems. My wife will tell you, I make problems around the house. She's a sweet, precious wife, and she's been putting up with me for sixty years, over 60 years. And I, I can make more messes in 30 minutes' time than she can clean up in a year, in a week's time. <clears throat> Some of y'all know about how those things work. <laughs> I'm not supposed to. I'm making confession. Confession is good for your soul, you know. I, I know. But human beings are problem makers. We're dirty. We're just, we, you know, if you don't believe it, you just watch, walk along behind and around people. And we're by nature, we're depraved. We are depraved beings. Oh, we've been born again. Yes, that's, 
That's we have a new nature in Christ Jesus. But we still have a carnal nature to deal with. And that carnal nature is always on duty. It never goes to sleep. Even in your dreams sometimes you have bad dreams. Why? Because of your carnal nature. I even I snore sometimes. Why? Because of my carnal nature. You, we are, and when we come together as a church, you, you have to ask God's grace and God's help that order to come together and be in harmony. And that's why Paul would write in Ephesians says, endeavor to keep the harmony, the peace. Endeavor to do it. You can't just let it happen. You've got to guard it. It's a precious gem. It is a precious gem. Just like your marriage and everything else. Where there's peace, it's a precious gem. So these churches have problems. And the Lord writes to encourage them, but he also writes to correct them. He'll do it. If it's his church. As we say up in the mountains, one way or the other, God will do it, get it done. If we don't, aren't corrected by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, by taking the admonitions from God's Word, if God doesn't, if we don't take heed to those things, the Lord has a way. Now, please understand, what I'm about to say does not mean that every sickness and every death is a judgment of God. But I will use it as tell you that Paul writing the church at Corinth said because of the abuses of the Lord's Supper, for this reason, some are weak and some are sickly and some sleep. The Lord was chastening some of those members in that congregation because they were not heeding and they were abusing the Lord's Supper and they were doing it in a way in which they violated that. And so as a result of that, God said, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the head of his church, said, it's time to bring some discipline. And he gives that message. He said, if you would discipline yourself, then you would not have to be judged. But you're disciplined in order that you will not be condemned with the world. That's what the Lord is doing. The church of Jesus Christ is a precious thing. And if we don't ourselves, don't discipline ourselves, the Lord would do the discipline because it's his bride. And so he writes to these seven churches. I hope you know them, read them, understand them. The church of Laodicea, that rich, wealthy church, like the churches in America today, we are increased with goods and have need of nothing. We are wealthy and rich. And the Lord says to that church at Laodicea, you don't know how naked you are and how poor you are. And I counsel you to buy of me proper attire. Oh, 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 don't go there. Don't talk about proper attire. Churches today... You can come into church today wearing anything you want to wear. It won't be long till we're wearing bikini suits, I believe, in the church service. We need to get some curtains somewhere so we can wrap around some people so their nakedness don't show. Oh, I'm getting off track. Let me go on. <clears throat> the church at Ephesus. That's a good church. Oh, you know how to try and test false apostles. You're sound in doctrine and practice. You're, you're so sound, but I have somewhat against you. What is it? You've left your first love. What's that? You're going through the mechanics of having church. You're going through the form of it. 
You're having church regularly, preaching, singing. Oh, you sing out of good books. You use the King James Version. Oh, yes. Oh, you're just, we're just so sound in doctrine. Oh, yes. But it's a formality. The old expression we have, it's like kissing your sister. Some of you don't know what that means. Kissing your sister is just a formality, you know. But when you kiss your sweetheart, that's different. I kissed a sweetheart and I got married to her. But we go through a formality of having church. No love for Christ. No zeal for him. You know what happens? You go talk to these foreign countries where people have been persecuted. They walk miles to come to church and they sit in churches in buildings, they don't have any air conditioning, they don't sit in padded pews, and they sit there for hours, and when you preach, <coughs> when you preach to them, <coughs> they'll say, preach some more. Preach some more. They want to be in church all day long. And we think because we've given God an hour on Sunday, that we've really paid our dues to the Lord. And yet there are people who've been beaten, killed, simply because they carry a Bible, have a Bible. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. We've lost our love for the Lord. We're going through the mechanics of it. And I'm not going to talk about all these churches. I I could, but I, I need to tell you that the book of Revelation was written to the Lord's churches It's written to you, to us today. We need to read it and study it. Well, look what the Lord says in the first chapter. In the first chapter, he says in verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. It's ongoing. It's right now. Who readeth, don't just read it, but they hear it. And they don't just hear it, they keep the prophecies and the promises that are therein. I believe we're having an afternoon service. Lord's willing, I'll pick up here this afternoon. Let's stand, sing a song, if you would, please. I trust that God will bless his word to your hearts. I trust that you will pray for me as we look to the afternoon session.